So, um, hi. <laughs> Get settled up here. Um, so I am Leo Mansell McLeod Jr. I'm named after my father, but not by my father. It was my mother's idea with no input from my father at all. So she, she just named me Leo Mansell McLeod when my father came into the delivery room and said, what did you name our son? Can you believe that? It's like, I mean, when we had kids, it was this month-long or two-month-long collaborative process looking at almanacs and dictionaries and, and, and doing sort of very, very, you know, it was, a, it was a partnership. But back in 1957, apparently, the mom just made the decision, okay, you know, um, I already have three kids, number four comes along, and I think we'll just call him after, after you. And he walked into the room and he said, what would you name your son? He said, well, and named him Leo Manson McLeod Jr. And he said, wow, Leo? That's a great name. He said, Leo, <laughs> nice to meet you. I'm Leo, you're Leo, how are you? And he went into this whole skit. And my mother was totally taken back by how cute that was and how much it meant to him because, well, she, she, had, she had no idea. They, they didn't talk about that kind of stuff. Um, so I came from a big family, family of seven. Uh, and my dad worked all the time and so I didn't see him, and at night, unfortunately, he drank, so I didn't see him then either. And I, I have a lot more compassion at 57 around this whole alcoholism than I did when I was younger. I was just basically just pissed off all the time. Um, but, uh, however, what I want to talk about is really those moments that it was just the two of us together. Because uh, those were rare moments. Um, I remember we'd go to the, the dump together right, in the station wagon, and we go to the dump, it's like now we have, gar we have garbage, people pick up the garbage, back there was like, they're too cheap, we're gonna take the garbage to the dump, and my dad would be like negotiating barter with the, the dump master for like a bike that was $2 to try to get down to $1.75, right? And we'd actually come back with like more crap in the car than we brought. Uh, or going to Montgomery Wards, in the station wagon to get snow tires. Like, that's a, a really fun day. Uh, <laughs> my favorite memory is actually when we went to Newburgh. I, was, I lived in the Hudson Valley. We went down to Newburgh uh, to go get a carburetor part. We were always going out and getting car parts for some reason. Um, but we went down and we stopped off into this dairy, and it was this brick building off the side of a highway. And this building had a little lunch counter. This is where they processed milk and they made cheese and ice cream and, and sour cream and all this stuff. And they had a little counter attached to this building with about four stools. And, and the, uh, you know, the, the person who served the ice cream was, had a little uniform on stuff, a little hat. It was adorable. And, um, <laughs> and, and we had this ice cream sundae that in my mind was like literally like this big. It was like, it was like this carved glass uh, urn. It was like a urn, like just like 18 pounds of ice cream and, and chocolate sauce like dripping over the edges. And, and, and what my father came to call gobs and gobs of whipped cream. Gobs and gobs of whipped cream. Because uh, there was a lot of whipped cream. We shared this, which was kind of cool. We ate it, it was delicious. But that term, gobs and gobs of whipped cream, came to kind of symbolize anything that was like in excess and really good. So it was like, wow, that Christmas was like gobs and gobs of whipped cream. Or like, that dress looks great on you. It's like gobs and gobs of whipped cream. It's like, no, Dad, it doesn't, like, it doesn't translate, you know? But, 
<laughs> we lived in um, an old sea captain's home in the Hudson Valley near the Hudson River. It was built in 1887 and it had like a widow's peak and a veranda where it round and inside it had wide floorboards and cherry wood with carvings in it and leaded glass. I mean, it was this beautiful, it was a little bit like a, something out of an Edgar Allan Poe book though, you know, it was like a, like a Wuthering Heights kind of thing. So it was scary, it was genuinely a scary house. <laughs> and uh, you didn't really want to spend a lot of time there if you were alone. <laughs> uh, which brings me to the time when I was alone. <laughs> in the house, but I was with my dad. So it was the two of us together. My mother had taken my brothers and sisters and gone upstate New York to Lake Champlain for a vacation. So this is winter time, um, winter break. They went up to spend some time up there. So it was just my dad and I. And she poured a very stiff martini. So this is like, here comes the script. I see it coming. And he's just starting to kind of go to sleep. And um, I'm like, all right, you know, I'm kind of used to this. However, this night is different because I'm alone in the house with my dad and I hear above, I'm down in the dining room, I hear above in the hallway. That clearly, like I can hear it now, just like that. And I'm thinking, okay, very quickly, what could it be other than footsteps? <laughs> and and no, nothing's coming up. <laughs> it's not like a radiator, it's not a cat, it's not the wind, it's just freaking ghost is what it is. It's the and I'm just like petrified, and my dad is there, but my dad isn't there, right? He's not there, he's not there to protect me. Like I wanted to like wake him up and like you hear those footsteps, right? But he, he was unconscious. And I did what I could do, the only thing I could do, think of, is grab my keys and get in my 1961 Chrysler Imperial that I bought for $100 with a push button transmission and <laughs> rode off into the night at, at 10 o'clock at night in a snowstorm, rolling the windows down to stay awake to go up to Lake Champlain, where my mother was, and I walked through at 1, 1.30. Hi, Mom, how are you, right? Did not tell her what went on. Didn't say, yeah, uh, I was alone. I heard footsteps. Uh, Dad was asleep, so that's why I'm here, you know? Because <laughs> uh, I'm 18, I'm like, I shouldn't be afraid of these things, but I was, you know? Uh, in fact, I was, I was, as I was thinking about this story, I talked to my mother, who's 92, and I was relaying that story and I said, hey, did I ever tell you this story? She goes, no, you never told me that story. So I never shared with her why I was up there. And what's weird and sad, actually, is that my dad never brought it up. Like, what happened when he woke up? Did he go like, where's Leo, you know? <laughs> I'm like, we never talked about it. Like, <laughs> He did eventually stop drinking. Uh, he went to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, I have to tell you that if you continue to drink, it'll kill you. He goes, oh really? Then I'll stop. But really, now I'm really mad at you. I'm really gonna kick your ass. But I thought, well, maybe there's a window here. Maybe I can get to know my dad. Um, but it was seemed like in my mind, like a really short amount of time between that happening and another event. And that is that, um, 
Uh, he came home one day from work, which is really unusual because he was he was he just identified very strongly with being a provider. He was a hard worker. He always worked, never missed a day. And he came home, and I have this vision of him, or this image of him, crying on the porch. I never saw my father cry. Crying on the porch, my mother holding him. He had lost his job. And we found out soon after that we lost it. he lost his job because he had Alzheimer's. So um, um, if any of you have been through that experience, it's absolutely awful. I remember the day, unfortunately, when I walked in, he did, Leo McLeod Sr. didn't know who Leo McLeod Jr. was. Um, and it was hard. It was hard for me to actually be in the house. I actually, by this time, was actually you know, kind of making a life of my own. I had moved out west. I was in Portland. I got married. Uh, and actually, you know, my brothers and sisters and my mother really did the heavy lifting. They took care of him. Uh, and it was difficult. It was difficult for me to go back there uh, and see him because of that. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, right. It was difficult for me to go back there. Um, when I was 32, I got a phone call from my sister that said that, uh, that my dad had a stroke and I better come back. Uh, so I had to talk with my wife and, I, and she said, well, what are you afraid of? And, um, and I said, I'm afraid that I'll be alone with him when he dies. And I don't even know why I said that. In fact, uh, like six months ago, I actually asked her that question. Said, "Like, is that my imagination, or did I actually say that?" She goes, "No, you actually, you actually said that." So I went back and went to JFK, took a Trailways bus up to Poughkeepsie, and these are the days when before cell phones. So I don't know if he's dead, right? I'm just hoping I'm going to get there in time. And I get into Poughkeepsie, and there's. I hailed a cab. Okay, I never hailed a cab. Like, I'm 32 and I've never been in a cab. And uh, it's just the way it was. But the, the cab was, like, really scary and ugly. It was, like, really, like, messy and not like the nice ones in Portland. This was, like, really... Uh, and the, the cab driver was, just had this really, like, bad mojo. You know, he's just like, like, why are you being so like evil and mean? You know, it's like my dad's dying, right? But I felt he was like this, um, like character. It was like I was being transported over the River Styx. It was like, it was like the ferryman. Uh, really, it was just like, some, I had this feeling that something was going on. And I went to the hospital, went up to the hospital bed, and uh, I walked in. And my family was around the, the hospital bed, and my knees buckled because my dad was like, like in, like embedded into the mattress. I mean, just like sunken down and gray, and I didn't recognize him. And um, my family had been there for like I don't know, two days. They were exhausted. I said, you know, why don't you just go? Why don't you leave? and take a break, go down the cafeteria. I stood by my mother as she signed the directive not to resuscitate, which is not the time you want to be doing that thing, but she did, and then they went downstairs. I was with my dad for about 15 minutes. This was summertime, it was, I think July, 
in the Hudson Valley and it got muggy so there were a lot of there were storms that would happen and I was sitting with him and I heard I heard thunder and then I saw lightning and I said oh shit because I knew it was coming and I knew the nurses weren't going to come they weren't going to do anything and I was alone with him my greatest fear far more than the footsteps when I was 18 facing death because I'd never I'd never seen death I'd never been with someone who died it's like really like I'm going to be with someone like my father who's going to die in front of me and um, he flatlined the monitor went and for two years every time I heard a sound like that it was like dude would just stop me cold and he craned up in bed his eyes opened because he was in a coma and I just held him and I said we love you because, and it wasn't I love you, it was we love you, because I wanted him to know that he had the love of his family. Um, that he had the love of his family to take him to the other side, that those are the words. And, um, and he died, he died in my arms. And, and I think, um, you know, here I am, alone again, scared, and my dad's not there for me. But this time actually is different because I was there for him. And actually he was there for me. Because Liam McLeod Sr. showed Liam McLeod Jr. that you don't need to fear death if you're surrounded by love. 